Hi, welcome back to the Only Cure to Borderline Personality Disorder podcast. I'm Shamala Del Rosario. I'm 53. I'm a mother, a grandmother, wife, and I've lived with distorted perceptions for my entire life. I had been convinced that there was something fundamentally wrong with me and that I was unfixable. But around a year ago, I stumbled across Brian Barnett And from that moment, my misperceptions began to unravel. As I continue to do the inner work to root out the underlying subconscious distorted core belief that my feelings are irrelevant and shameful, devoid of worth and therefore so am I, I'll be using this podcast platform to share my insights and thoughts. So I strongly suggest that you do subscribe to thelastsymptom.com and The Last Symptom Podcasts. And before I'm accused of plagiarism, let me explain that The Last Symptom is a free resource that I have had and continue to have the privilege of learning from. So I will frequently reference Brian Barnett's work. And when you think about it, my recovery is based on his support and approach. So let's get this disclaimer out of the way before we move on to talk about today's topic. So just to be clear, these are my personal experiences and insights of borderline personality disorder. I'm not qualified in any field of emotional or mental health, and anybody that chooses to listen is responsible for their own thoughts, feelings and actions. Thank you for your continued support. I do love getting messages and hearing about your recovery and the insights that you're all having. Um, every, every single step forward is massive and really is a step closer to rooting out, rooting out that shame. Well, me, I'm 53. Um, I hadn't thought about primary school memories for quite a long time, until recently, um, that is. But looking at an old school report from oh, hmm, 1974, 1975, and this was when I was kind of seven or eight, I can see how much of an impact the um, the British exp- expedition of the southwest face of Mount Everest it actually was on my perceptions of life, and how wrong those perceptions were. And I can also now see that the teacher's motivation and what she thought that she was teaching me was actually something completely different to what I was taking from her. Anyway, um, to try to illustrate, I'm the youngest of three and there's only three years between all of us so we're all babies together. So now if you bear in mind that back then there was no television, no phones, no internet, no toys or anything like that, but there were books. I don't remember actually learning to read and write because I think I picked it up, well I did, I picked it up really, really early and that's probably by having my brother and sister learning. So by the time I started school I could already read, um, you know, Peter and Jane books and so I was a little more advanced in my reading than most of the other of the other children. And anyway, when I was about seven I was selected to go into this um, this class and it was um, a class that was a few years above my age range, just twice a week. Um, I think I can't remember if it was a morning or an afternoon on each one, but it was just twice a week. And this was to introduce me into topic world. And honestly, I really liked this teacher straight away. 
she was kind of cool, trendy, you know, dressed in hippie-ish clothes. And she smelt of that um, petuna oil. I didn't know that's what it was at the time. And everything, it, sh it just seemed everything was exciting. Anyway, her name was Mrs. Scott. And she was married to this guy named Doug Scott. And he was a mountaineer. Yeah. And so he was a member of this um, Chris Bonington's 1974 expedition to conquer Mount Changabang. That's a mountain in the in the Himalayas. Um, and they were the first to ever ascend. And that was in June of, of 1974. Oh, it was really, really exciting. There were pictures, slideshows, interviews. And it was like this. It was just this different world. And now um, what they were saying was that permission had been granted for them to prepare for this 1975 southwest face of Mount Everest um, expedition. I'm sure that you all know that Mount Everest is Earth's highest um, mountain above sea level. It's, it's also it's in the Himalayas. It's, um, you know, the China-Nepal border. It runs across that summit point. And it's about just over 29,000 um, feet high. I mean, that's a flipping high elevation, isn't it? I know uh, the first ascent was in 1953 by Sir Edmund Hillary, but that's that was before my time. I wasn't born yet. Anyway, this um this Doug Scott, he'd actually been a part of the Chris Bonington's um expedition of in 1972, as I say, and that was also to to scale Mount Everest on the southwest face. But that expedition um, failed to reach the summit. It was the same route that they were planning this time of the one that they just um, that had failed. Yeah. So this this apparently the southwest face had never actually been been done before. And so it was dangerous, but it was exciting. And this was um this was our kind of topic and it was in real time. So that was kind of going to be the preparation right through to the actual ascent. So that was kind of like right through to actually conquering Everest because I've been introduced to these new words as well now, you know, like conquering and expedition. And it was all, everything was really, really exciting. And when I think about this this now, um, it, was, it, was, it was an incredible privilege to actually be witnessing and actually being a part of... Um, this thing it was like kind of historic really wasn't it so and I was also learning about the dangers you know I mean because this southwest face it was one of apparently it was one of the most difficult challenges in mountaineering and that was because of the, the just the sheer length and high exposure to the winds and then obviously not forgetting the monsoon I mean apparently the onset of the mon the monsoon um, off the coast of Sri Lanka, it's in mid-May, and sometimes it's accompanied by cyclones high up in the, the, the Bay of Bengal, and that signals the coming of the Everest weather window. Anyway, that's, um, that's a window, window of time. It's with no jet wind, um, low general winds, and little precipitation, so perfect for, for climbing high, high altitudes. Um, this Chris Bonington, he said that the previous attempt in 1972, he, he said it, it wasn't a failure. Um, he said that he'd had the satisfaction of knowing that him and his team had taken themselves to their own personal limits and even beyond. And he said that the that it had been the odds that had been piled 
against them. This had been a a post, um, so a later than monsoon attempt, and there was always kind of the possibility of being beaten by the the high winds. He'd said, so what he concluded was that it had been, well. He said that it was the only slot available at the time, um, so he had to take that slot because otherwise he'd have had to have waited for four years. And basically that's what mountaineering is all about anyway, the challenge of it. So, And um, Doug said that after using um, the so-called, so I think they called it an escape route onto the normal South Ridge, that there was no there was no way that any human being could have actually survived that slope, but they would have just been kind of whipped off the mountain face and they've got no chance but no choice, sorry, but just to, to make the descent. And um I mean tragically in the last moments of that expedition, one of the team was killed in, in the icefall. But a death a death was not part of the challenge. Um safety's got to come first. And Chris was the expedition leader, so he was ultimately responsible for his team. And that includes, you know, the Sherpa. And they're these kind of elite, um, if you like, Himalayan mountaineers. And they're, they're expert guides at um, extreme altitudes of the peaks and passes, particularly like Everest. And they function really, really well at high altitudes as well. And often they don't need oxygen until above um, Camp 4. Anyway, this... Um, expedition they'd been sponsored by i think it was barclays bank so money wasn't an issue we didn't have to get into any finances that's probably why i liked it because there was no math but anyway but these guys they needed to be in their in the best physical and mental health you know as best as possible i mean that wasn't really um much of an issue because they were already used to climbing high altitudes they've just done um changabang you know and the bodies were kind of they were used to fending off high altitude sickness, but they did need to continue with significant strength, endurance and strong, you know, cardiovascular conditioning. And obviously they had to experience um, dealing with, you know, gear and the equipment, handling extremely cold, really, really cold temperatures and obviously the extreme altitude. They'd already got skills, you know, cramping in skills, both uh, rock, snow and ice. I can't remember all of their physical exercises, but they were extreme, you know, with rucksacks, weights, bulky clothing and all that kind of thing. And they also discussed, you know, mental training too. And what they were saying is, you know, when the body is physically exhausted, that that's all you've got left, visualisation. Other things that they were saying to be aware of was that, um, you know, the further up, the higher the altitude, the mental alertness actually drops by around 30% of the, the normal level. And you can possibly have hallucinations too, you know, when you're fatigued and tired. I mean, remember, uh, the kit was a, a lot heavier back then as well, you know. So, I mean, it's not like it is now because I bet it's a lot lighter. And the guys had to set up all of the camps and everything because this was the first you know, real go for it. Um, and everything went through Chris, like I say, he was the actual leader. So he had all of the checklists. So all the climbing tools, you know, camp supplies, clothing, oxygen, everything needed to be checked by him. And it was obvious that he took this really, really seriously. He got a backup plan for everything, you know, checklists and every eventuality. He was obviously, he was in control. 
and it just appeared that he knew all of the answers too. He was to me he was a real leader and no one was questioning any of his decisions. He'd learned lessons from obviously from the failed expedition. And so any attempt should be as early as possible after the monsoon. So that was meaning that the trek um, from Kathmandu to base camp had to be during monsoon itself. And uh, a seventh camp uh, needed to be established. And that one was going to be to the left of the gully. Um, camp six as well was going to be established on the, on the upper snowfield. And this was going to be, in, well, it needed to involve very, very careful logistical planning. And so like other things were oxygen above camp four for the climbers and above camp five for the Sherpas, um, using fixed rope up the face. And then there was the equipment. Oh God, um, all that logistics there, because it was 24 tonnes um, in weight left the UK and it had to pass through. I think, it, I'm sure it was 22 um, different customs post back then. Uh, it took around three months for it all to arrive in Kathmandu in the established base camp in the uh, 22nd of August. Well, to jump it along, I mean, the, the expedition itself, it was successful and it was in the post-monsoon um, season as well. They used uh, rock climbing techniques to put fixed ropes up the, the face from the, from the western, western cum and that was just below the south summit. And apparently a key aspect of this success was the scaling of the cliffs of the, the rock band around 27,000 feet. So two teams then climbed up the south summit and followed the southeast ridge to the main summit. And on the 24th um, of September 1975, um, that's when they actually reached the, the summit. And um, apparently Doug made the highest bivouac of that time that is and the bivouac um i didn't know what it was and it's a kind of a it's a temporary it's a temporary camp so can you imagine i mean doug had said it was like spending the night in a in just a sheet sleeping bag in a deep freezer you know with oxygen cut by two thirds and with no food and they couldn't sleep because um well sleep would have been fatal look i mean amazingly they didn't suffer from um frostbite and um, they stayed up there for overnight and then they began their descent um, in the, on that morning. And they actually got back to base camp on the 30th of September. So that was 33 days after actually um, leaving base camp. And so, I mean, there was avalanches and there were all kinds of problems that, I mean, I don't know when they were throughout the actual um, expedition. And um, another mountaineer, Mick, Mick Burke, he fell to his death um, shortly after Doug had actually started his, um, <clears throat> his descent. He, he was actually also part of Chris's team. Um, and he was actually last seen as part of the second, the second summit push. And it was just a few hundred metres from the actual summit. But it isn't actually known whether or not he actually did reach um, the highest point. The weather, you see, it began to deteriorate quite rapidly. Um, and so just after he was last seen and within really, within hours, then storms kind of set in and they lasted for two days. And that prevented any rescue attempt at all until the, the storm calmed. And his body it was never, it was never found. 
And also there was a, a deaf and dumb young Sherpa who he was also found dead. Um, he was actually found dead in a in a stream just below the base camp. And um, some of the other team members, they also had uh, frostbite to varying degrees and also, also other injuries. And then the team seemed to be, they were kind of celebrating, um, well, congratulating one another um, on obviously their achievements. But Chris, um, he spoke, well, I mean, it was obviously on television, it was just a small clip, but this was what I was seeing. He he spoke a lot about the, the deaths, you know, and he paid tribute to to those guys. And he didn't, he, he wasn't celebrating, he wasn't um, congratulating himself. He was, it was all about the people that had died. And I thought um, Chris's role as leader then meant that it was his fault. Um, he must be to blame because he was actually in charge. And there he was. I mean, he was on television, wasn't he? He was saying how sorry he was for the deaths and saying um, nice things about them. You know, I mean, he was obviously got, he was emotional. He knew these people. I didn't know that then, but he was emotional about it. So he got kind of um, tears in his eyes. I, I never saw Chris um, Bonington again on television or kind of anything. And then, so for me, I suppose that was the end of Topic World. And I thought that I'd put it to bed, so to speak. But when I do actually look at my my current career, oh, well, my lifelong um, career and my, my thinking pattern, I've actually taken a lot from, from that learning period. I've always wanted to be the leader. I've needed to be the one to make the decisions. And I've needed my decisions, but I've judged them as life and death. And my first thought, it's always um, worst case scenario, potential disaster. And then it's my job to um, find a solution to save whatever. Because like um, a standard part of my job anyway, I mean, any job that I do, it's um, a SWOT analysis. You know, the strengths, um, weaknesses, opportunities, threats to the business. But when I actually look now in my personal um, strengths, my strengths are, I would say, um, can see the weakness and threats before they materialise. That's my strength. And my weakness would be imagines potential for weaknesses and threats and like i've said before i mean i'm always involved in operations management which involves compliance hr health and safety data protection all of it and 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 the bestest 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 part for me disaster recovery planning honestly i've got absolutely no problem at all here I can do it in five minutes, blindfolded. You don't even have to ask me. You know, really, really, you don't even have to ask me. And I'm not talking about just servers, um, key data, but an outline, you know, of all processes that have got to be carried out in the event of, um, of a disaster, because I can see where all the potential problems are going to be. Yeah, so, I mean, it could be data loss or, or man-made error. It doesn't matter. I can, I can spot the worst case scenario. And my worst case scenarios have always been extreme. And really many, many, many people have commented um, on how profound and, um, oh dear, my eye for potential disaster is, um, 
it's scary they've said but now i'm actually wondering how this um this first experience with actually topic world would have actually affected me um differently had i kind of like heard and perceived the intended message um healthfully you know because the message could have read to me you can do anything that you want you can even climb the highest mountain in the world and also um and that a leader a leader sets a clear vision a leader motivates guides builds morale leadership doesn't mean control true leaders establish trust and help others to realize their full potential which is kind of validating people and the responsibility and blame are different things so when things do go wrong responsibility should always result in guilt but blame it always does result in shame well that's it for me um i hope the rest of your week is good um as ever thanks for listening um and please do continue to like comment subscribe and share oh and just to add in 1977 just a bit more information chris bonington and doug scott they actually conquered mount ogre in in pakistan and would you believe it during the actual descent doug broke both his legs and chris smashed his ribs um which turned that expedition into a bit of a desperate fight for life but that's another story take care now bye